0: I feel like every African-American household is required to talk about what gun violence means to us in our community. It's always going to be a conversation for us because we are unproportionately affected by gun violence. Black men are 13 times more, um, you know, more likely to be killed by guns, 13 times more than a a white person. You know, 60% of, of unarmed People that are, approached, that are killed by police officers are minorities, and that's ridiculous, you know, um, especially when it comes to police brutality. I've always, been, I've always been an advocate for, you know, just living, you know. That was Ho Xing.
1: She was a junior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School when the mass shooting happened. Gun violence is a different conversation depending on who you are, whether you are black or white.
0: So I guess that's how gun violence um, has always interjected itself into like, my family's household and my friend circle and church is that we, this that it, it affects us, so that's why we talk about it.
1: Today on Changemakers, we're in Parkland, Florida, looking at the March for Our Lives movement that grew in response to the mass shooting of 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. In this, our third episode, our focus is on the question of identity. One of the reasons for the success of the March for Our Lives students was who they were. Articulate, white, relatively privileged young people. This created opportunities for their movement, but it did also create tensions with others, like urban black communities who face frequent gun violence without any national attention. What can we learn about how identity matters in building social change? Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. We tell stories like this one, and we also make Changemaker chats where we feature people who make change. We want to thank Cheryl McDonough and the documentary team at Parklands Rising for helping us to produce this series. Parklands Rising is an extraordinary film about these events, and we would encourage you all to see it. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Changemakers99 or Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. Gun ownership has become part of the modern American narrative. The National Rifle Association has worked steadily since the 1960s to use the Second Amendment of America's Constitution to argue that people should be able to own almost any gun they want. The evolution of gun love is not faceless. In modern America, carrying a gun in public is coded as white privilege. Go back in history And this right is dripping in colonial legacy, where slave owners allowed poor whites to carry guns to quell uprisings. As Jonathan Metzi, Order of Dying of Whiteness, argues, the right to carry a gun in America is fuelled by a politics of whiteness and white resentment that is widespread across America.
2: On the flip side, I spoke with many white Americans and I, I went to air, very quite pro-gun areas and I talked to them and really gained an understanding of how they saw guns as part of, their, uh, part of their identity, in a way, part of their political identity, part of their racial identity.
1: Taking the right to carry guns and using it to take extremist positions like there should be no background checks or that people have a right to own military weapons is a form of toxic white identity. You can't look at identity and gun violence and not look at race. As Mealing explained, the bullets don't land equally across the country. Black men are 13 times more likely to be killed than white men. Virtually free access to guns is killing people from a particular group. Black people. And it isn't just about lives lost. It's about how gun violence frames your life if you're a black person. You live with an anticipatory trauma. Every African-American parent has to have the talk with their kids, especially their boys, about gun violence and the police.
0: It's the pain that comes with it is that, you know, my family not even family, like, I'll say my, my, my community, um, has to deal with approaching their young men, their, their sons, their nephews, and, have to, and their, their uncles, their fathers, their husbands, and say in the morning, like, you know, be careful.
1: It's why Mealing was very aware of gun violence well before her school shooting. In February 2012, in Sanford, Florida, 15-year-old Traven Martin was killed by George Zimmerman a self-appointed neighbourhood community watch captain.
0: I remember I protested in middle school for Trayvon Martin, and Trayvon Martin was just going to a corner store to get iced tea and Skittles, and uh, the wannabe cop saw him and was like, you know, this kid looks suspicious, and called the police and said, oh, this kid looks suspicious, and the police said, do not act upon it, and he went to him and shot him. Um, I remember we protested all throughout the trial um, in middle school, when I was like, that was 2012, I was 11 years old. And I, you know, we, we wore hoodies and Skittles and had um, iced tea throughout the whole trial, only to find out that he was um, not guilty. Um, George Zimmerman, he was not, not guilty for the murder of Trayvon Martin. Um, and that broke all of our hearts. The acquittal
1: of George Zimmerman sparked a national protest movement that led to the formation of Black Lives Matter. Over the following years, Black Lives Matter grew profoundly through street demonstrations and digital solidarity in response to the deaths of young African-American men at the hands of police. Young men like Michael Brown, Eric Garner and Freddie Gray. African-American high school students like Meiling were politically shaped by the rise of Black Lives Matter. Then, the 14th of February, 2018, happened.
0: That's when the shot, we heard the first two shots, followed by a fire alarm, and then we heard rapid fire. And our teacher stood over us as we all hid behind her desk. I looked over to the girl next to me and I held out my hand and I was just like... You know, I, I just looked at her and she grabbed my hand and we sh- sat there and we shook together as the sounds got closer and closer to us. As we knew we heard him very, like outside of our door and we, we, I just started praying.
1: Mealing lost very close friends that day. So did another African American student, Jamal Lemmy. Both of them described needing time to step back and be with family in the immediate aftermath of the tragedy. Unlike David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez, who were pushing for immediate action, Jamal found himself in a space of reflection.
3: Whether it was the shooting of Trayvon Martin or, you know, Mike Brown or Philando Castile, you know, seeing those shootings and see how it appeared in the news cycle and then, you know, seeing this, you know, seeing this event... I was like, I, I guess I, you know, I was I was upset in the way where I was like, you know, if the the energy towards what happened, you know, in our community, was a lot different from seeing like the everyday gun violence and police brutality that Black and Brown people face in this country. So like, you know, I was aware to it, oh, and like, I noticed it, and like I thought it was, you know, I, I thought it was quite extraordinary, but uh, you know, at the same time, there was still this, you know, feeling of, you know, like. Like, what makes this, you know, different from what's, you know, what happens every day in our, you know, in our streets?
1: Jamal was not alone. Meiling decided to go to a CNN town hall debate a little over a week after the shooting, in part to process her increasing levels of unease.
0: Emma Gonzalez popped off on, like, the officials and Marco Rubio, and it was, like, a huge thing. Um, and I was there, and that was just me just being there because, like... What the heck did we just go through?
1: At the event, Meiling saw an African-American school board leader.
0: And I felt like I needed to talk to her because, of course, after the 14th um, and days to come and realizing that we were still on the news, I did not understand where the topic about gun violence is going to, that about black people is ever going to come up. Um, I was so upset. <laughs> um, and I had no idea how to talk about it because... I felt like I would be insensitive to talk about gun violence, you know, about black people when 17 people just died at my school. But then again, in my head, I'm like, people, my people have been dying for decades, you know? So I needed someone to guide me on how to talk about this. Whether it was going to be me or not, it had to, you know, I wanted this conversation to be told. Um, I emailed her, I need some help. Where was this for Trayvon Martin? Where was this for Alton Sterling? Where was this for the Charleston church, Pulse nightclub? Like, the, they, was the bigger conversation is like, this has been happening forever. So now a nation wants to galvanize it. The whole world wants to galvanize it. We've been marching, I, like my family, my family, my ancestors have been marching for so long. Her email struck a chord with the school board leader. And she emailed me the next day, we're going to get this done, Mailing.
1: The first thing Mailing did was to take her concerns to some of the students leading March for Our Lives.
0: To be completely blunt, I think it took us when we went... until we addressed it, um, when we spoke to Emma Gonzalez, because at, at the end of the day, we still went to school together. <laughs> I still saw her every day. Um, to say, like, this, needs to, this is not intersectional enough. Like, we need to talk about these things. These things would be brought up. I'm sure that they wouldn't even recognise that black students go to Douglas. You know, even mention that until what David Hogg reposted, uh, I want to speak on behalf of black students as Marjorie Soma Douglas, like I don't have my own mouth. (laughs) There was real tension. If you bring a generous eye,
1: you can see how mistakes were made. The most prominent students were trying to do their best as fast as they could. There was an ocean of pressure, and under extraordinary circumstances, they were making shortcuts. And sometimes, making mistakes. But like anyone, they only had their existing experience to draw on. With no African-American members in their inner circle, no one had a deep understanding of how gun violence shaped African-American identity. But Mealing did, and her confrontation caused a shift. On the 4th of March, a group of students from Chicago were invited to come to Florida and share some of their experiences of gun violence with the Parkland students. The trip was reported on ABC. The school shooting rampage done in Florida has now united Parkland survivors there with Chicago students who live with violence on a regular basis. They spent the day trying to understand each other.
0: Even though we face different types of gun violence, we all feel the exact same way mm. after having experienced it.
1: There was a great distance to overcome, as Chicago student Trinity Cole-Reed said.
0: I think that they could tell that we were, we have been um, dealing with this violence issue for a long time and that um, we wanted to help and that our voice wasn't being heard.
1: After this event, March for Our Lives went broader still. On the 24th of March, at the massive demonstration in Washington, D.C., there were many speakers from urban black and brown communities that face regular gun violence. The day before the big rally... David Hogg addressed predominantly African-American students at a Washington, D.C. school.
3: Many of these communities are disproportionately affected by gun violence, but they don't get the same share of media attention that, that we do. We must call it out, and we must call it for what it is, and that's racial bias.
1: March for Our Lives created the possibility of an intersectional movement. Intersectional. So what does that mean? Well, the idea of intersectionality recognises that different social and political identities, things like race, class, sexuality, disability or gender, can combine to create distinctive forms of discrimination. Intersectionality is all about how our different identities can connect or overlap. Social movements like Black Lives Matter have argued that we need intersectional social movements where we have social movements that are led by a mixture of people with different identities. This allows people to create connection and understanding across difference in the process of finding their own liberation.
0: I felt like the march for Our lives was so powerful because it was so intersectional. Like there was time, there was just times where I just under, like I was able to agree or I was able to be in sympathy for not only, like, the students that go to my school that spoke, but, like, the students from all around the nation who spoke about gun violence in their own communities or their own experiences or what their family went through, that I was just like, wow, you know, this is so great. Jamal felt it too.
3: There was just so much positive energy and love in the air. There was, like, no hate or violence in the world, and everyone was just there for this one common thing.
1: But the biggest question for an intersexual movement is how people come together. Big events that look diverse can sometimes disguise more informal power imbalances that exist between people or
0: groups. It is one thing to have the seat at the table, but it's another thing to actually eat. And that's saying, and I say that a lot because it's one thing to say, you know, hey, I have this student next to me from Chicago to speak to you about them, in their community. Um, This is my, this is my person. Um, Have them speak a little bit and they're like, okay, so back to this, this, and this, and this. When the fact of the matter is, are they making decisions in how you go at things? Are they... Are they having a lead leadership inside of the organisation itself? Or are they just people that you call on to, to sit on panels? Um, are these people just to make sure that you have a, intersection, a, a, a visual intersectional group?
1: The March for Our Lives demonstration projected great hope for interconnection between communities and groups. The rally had a bold youth identity. This gave it great energy. As we discussed in episode 24, the intergenerational rage around gun reform was a hugely important narrative that brought people together. A shared identity mattered. But as intersectionality teaches us, different parts of our life experience, our wealth, what we look like, who we love, our gender, where we come from, and how our bodies and brains work, shape us, in powerful and often different ways. A young black man from Chicago and a wealthy white woman from Parklands have some things in common, but also plenty that's not. The challenge is how can we learn across our different experiences? How can we make space for each other? The March for Our Lives, Washington, D.C. rally ended a chapter. What was the mood like in the weeks after the march?
3: Well, it was was weird. There was this weird limbo for a while, from, like, the march to when we started our tour, where, like, you could just feel it in the air where, like, things were just different. The minute the march finished, it was like, what's next? Like, that was just a question that was on all our minds. It was just, like, what do we do next?
1: It took some time for the idea to become clear.
3: Yeah, it was just a lot of strategy in figuring out, like, what can we do? And I still kind of, like, birthed the idea of having a tour and... Um,
1: Whose idea was that?
3: I think it was Matt and Cameron's idea to have a tour.
1: The idea had a historical resonance that worked for Jamal.
3: Oh, because it reminded me of the... It reminded me of, you know, when the, uh, the young people during the civil rights movement Traveled through the, the deep south, you know, and many young activists lost their lives, and uh, it, it just seemed it seemed like a great idea because I at least it was like a chance for us to bring our story to like a lot of places that necessarily didn't know them or who weren't open.
1: Just like the 1964 Freedom Rides followed Martin Luther King's 1963 March on Washington the students planned a nationwide Road to Change bus tour as their next step following their March for Our Lives rally. The idea of Freedom Rides has a more recent resonance too. Black Lives Matter staged their own Freedom Rides to Ferguson after the shooting of Michael Brown in August 2014. March for Our Lives planned to use a tour of the country over summer to register voters in the lead-up to the 2018 midterm election. They also intended to build the local base of the movement by helping to establish or strengthen chapters around the country. It was a big tour.
3: Yeah, we went to over 60 cities in 60 days.
1: Each day was busy.
3: For a day, we'd, like, we'd wake up, have breakfast, and usually we'd use that day as a travel day. So we would travel from whatever location to like where our next destination was. And we'd have a meeting with the, what, um, the, the youth groups in the community. And then we'd have usually like a round table meeting to like build relationships and, you know, to build this like, you know, coalition, you know, and just talk and, you know, have conversations with the young people wherever, wherever we are going. Cause like our whole idea was like, we can't go into anyone's community without first addressing those who do the work there every single day. And then after that, we'd have a town hall later that night and we did that for 60 days.
1: The team already had supporters in most of the places they went.
3: So every, every location we went to, we were in direct um, conversation with whoever organized uh, a chapter in that city or a march in that city. So most of the organizers who, who organized the events we would have in like different cities were like actual organizers from the marches. Every time we went to a city, we usually would have someone there who organized, if not a march or some event.
1: Across the tour, the bus picked up students, giving the team a geographic spread. The process itself was about listening and learning.
3: As you learn more about certain subjects, you just, you just gain information and you gain new perspective and insight. So as we kind of experience more and learn more about what we actually got ourselves into... Um, we realised that we had to kind of readjust our aim for what we wanted to achieve. We just needed to adjust what, you know, we, you know, our aim to just be as inclusive as possible because a lot of, like, what we wanted to do before was, I think, didn't take into account of just different aspects of, like, individuals from different communities that face different issues and, you know, in relation to gun violence.
1: By placing themselves in different cities all across the country, they were able to see both the differences and the intersections that linked together the challenge of gun violence in America. Each place had its own story. In Texas, you can't separate someone who is suicidal or homicidal from their guns.
3: Because in like, the state of Texas, there's like the most gun deaths, and a lot of those deaths are to suicide.
1: By the tour's end, the students had registered at least 10,000 young voters and met more than 50 youth groups. It was another extraordinary achievement. Like much of the work of this group, it was fast and furious. Speed, however, comes with a trade-off. In quickly covering the breadth of the country, they necessarily weren't able to go deep. That said, not everyone was on the bus there was other work happening in other places at the same time. A different group of students embarked on a tour across Florida. The idea was similar to the national tour, but the smaller distance meant that participants spent more time with the communities they visited.
0: And I thought it was the best idea ever that they ever had was because they they visited districts and not just the state and left. Because once you visit districts, you have a more impact in these districts and people could come see you.
1: Students also branched off on their own. Since April, Mealing had built an increasingly strong relationship with a group of students at Thornwood High School in Chicago. Thornwood High School knew about gun violence.
0: Like, we were just a group of students who happened to be around with each other talking about the same issue, um, but in different perspectives. I was speaking with them, and it was a discussion. I really want them to—I wanted it to be a discussion. I said, you know, just to make, sh- make people vulnerable and to have a conversation was, how, how many—I said, how many of you guys have experienced gun violence, um, have lost a family, friend um, to gun violence? And every hand in that room raised up. And that broke my heart.
1: It was an auditorium. Meiling realised that her experience and their experience, while both involving guns,
0: were really different. These are kids that are losing people on the streets in Chicago all the time. It's not normal to have a whole classroom, a whole auditorium, Raise their hands. Right. It mattered who you were and where you were. Identity matters. And I, I'm sure they looked at me like I was crazy, like just about to on the brink of crying because I, I was. It was so unbelie- It was so unbelievable. So that's why I mean, like, it's unproportionate how this could happen. Because I know prior to February 14th, if I was to ask any, if I asked the auditorium in my in my at my school, that, I wouldn't have gotten the same result. For Mealing, if identity mattered, then how you work with people mattered too. So when I do talk to crowds of students, I say, you know, you know I try to open up more of a discussion. Versus like I'm talking to you because at the end of the day, the people, the, audience, the audiences that I'm talking to already know what the cadence of gun violence is. I don't have to sit here in front of you and preach to you um, and, and test and testify to you what gun violence is, because, you know, better than I do. I am tired of preaching to people and especially students who understand what, what, what this is because from the movement you've probably seen like the Emma Gonzalez and the David Hoggs and you've seen them like go out to these places where um, a lot of majority of um, black kids and minorities um, telling them about gun violence when these kids already know and this, these are the same students that they've met them before and they, they, they were like yeah they talked to us about something that we live through every day but like now what? So it's about not just preaching, but to start getting your f- boots dirty. It's starting to, st- learning how to protest. Let's see, what can we do? Who are your elected officials? Who, what, you know, what, can we stop normalising death? An intersectional
1: movement listens. The interconnection between our identities turns to power when we work out how to act together. When we make plans together when we learn and teach each other. Where we intersect our strengths to build power with each other. In these spaces of exchange, the content of the relationship changes too. Mealing found that taboo issues sometimes found their way to the table.
0: You know, can we stop shooting each other? We're, gonna, we're going to talk about the elephant in the room. That in these communities, we're shooting each other. It's not white on black or black on white. It's, it's us, our own race is shooting each other. And we're going to talk about it. You know, and we're not going to act like it's not there. You know? So it's, it's, like, it's like really talking about the deep issues of it. Um, not just like as, a, you know, as a whole. But let's get into the detail and what can we do.
1: As a whole getting to the root cause. Just like we discussed in our last episode, powerful intersectional politics gets to the root of a problem. It turns to the source. But this only happens if there is trust. To have intersectionality, you have to have relationships. Listening is what creates a transformative political agenda. In any social movement raising the issue of identity is confrontational. It goes to the heart of whose experience and whose voice is included and excluded. For those whose voice is already being heard, it is uncomfortable. Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg's teacher, Jeff Foster, felt this.
2: And that's what that's one of the things that bothers me most about people when they try to criticize our kids that were like spoiled kids from a rich area in South Florida is that we purposefully included all these other kids from all these different areas. And, and, and they've gone out of their way, the March for Our Lives kids, to go to Oakland and to go to Detroit and to go to Chicago and to go to New York and to go to all these cities, good, good and bad, and when bad being crime wise, and say, we're here to help you as well.
1: But students like Emma and David were not the only ones to feel tension.
0: So I got a lot of negative a, a, a negative energy from a lot of students. I was just like, like you know, you would make this like a race issue because I've always been labeled as an angry black girl that wants to talk about polit- politics and how we are very unproportionate about the deaths that happen and systematic oppression, you know, blase, 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 um, that they would say, you know, that they... You know, I would make this into a race issue. It's tense.
1: But good change makers don't turn away from tension. In the heat is energy. So let's come at this another way. How do we confront gun violence? Do you go specific? Do you fight for reasonable changes? If this is the plan, is the winning strategy to push ahead with a politically palatable set of spokespeople who can cut through? Involve different people as you can, sure, but the feel of the movement, the look of the movement, does it need to change significantly? Or, do you say that the gun violence question can only be won if it goes broad? That we can't win reforms that stop school shootings if we don't also deal with the supply of guns
0: that fuel urban gun violence? Gun violence in general is an issue, but if we're going to tackle it, and we have the platform that we have, we're bringing everybody on board. Not only blacks, we're talking. We're going to talk about you know the LGBTQ plus community is ridiculously impacted by gun violence, not only by hate crimes but suicides. You know, Um, we're going to talk about um, the hate crimes about religion that a lot of Muslims go through because people are labeling them as terrorists. It's it's there's so many late oh. Domestic abuse between relationships. If we're going to tackle it, we need to tackle, tackle everything. At one level, the extent to which we build intersectional
1: power is about how we see the scale of the problem that we confront. But identity isn't just about political strategy. It's about who has agency and power in the movements that we build, as Mealing told a national health conference in
0: 2019. As you can see, David isn't black, Black students don't need a spokesperson. I clearly don't need a spokesperson. (laughs) (laughs) Gun violence can affect anyone. Therefore, the movement needs to look like everyone.
1: Identity is also, most deeply, a call for recognition, not for help. It's a call for voice, for self-determination. Claiming your voice isn't an easy business. Exclusion, especially racist exclusion, embodies pain. The claim-making carries that pain when it is expressed inside social movements. When movements form fast, they often struggle to hear these cries for inclusion in and amongst the rapid pace of action. This is frustrating for those who have been historically excluded. And, in turn, frustration can be used as a righteous signifier. Mistakes can often be interpreted as malicious intent. And don't get me wrong, mistakes often have malicious intent. But that's not always what is happening. Intersectional movement building is hard because it is easy for words to hurt. And it's often easier to be defensive than to listen. And it's easier for any of us to dismiss others and be right rather than see things another way or to change. So too often we attack or use polarising language rather than turn towards each other. The hopefulness of March for Our Lives is that despite mistakes, there has been a readiness to be open to change a profound lack of defensiveness. Part of that came from the expansion of the movement itself. Leaders like Mi Ling, who found a voice and a space for herself and her activism. Identity does not need to be a zero-sum battle. We don't have a single identity, and our movements don't either. Mi Ling grew the pie. She made the movement bigger through investing in new relationships and by listening. March for Our Lives worked tirelessly up to the midterm elections in 2018. But it was a hard time to push for change.
2: You're always, you know, until we see meaningful, like, national legislation passed, it's hard to get completely excited about everything. I mean, were we, you know, encouraged again by by the youth turnout in the last election? Sure we were.
1: Turnout was up 188% compared to 2014. But at the same time, they lost the gubernatorial races that they were focused on, most dishearteningly, the race in Florida.
2: But to, but to see the kids and how they reacted and to be there, like, and there were tears and we were hugging and like, you know, guys, it's OK, you did, you did awesome, you know, you're not going to win every election.
1: March for Our Lives has generated hope that gun violence can change but its broad place is so much greater than this in the broad schema of American history. David Hogg's mum, Rebecca, was recently reminded of this. All the parents were together for a um, New Year's Eve party and, you know, we're watching the countdown to the new decade and they're talking about big stories of the decade and all of a sudden there they showed David and Emma. And we were like, holy shit! You know, we forget that they were one of the top stories of the decade. March for Our Lives is a battle for the future staged by the next generation. The contest is around gun violence, but the idea of intergenerational emancipation is a global one. In Hong Kong, students are fighting to secure a democratic future. Climate strikers across the world are fighting for a livable planet. A universal thread across all these groups is how we manage the tensions that lie across our differences and how our different kinds of power can intersect in how we work. Identity matters. And recognition matters too. It matters how we can hear and hold each other across our differences as we seek out the change we need.
3: We've sat across... Hardcore conservative Republicans, we you know, with neo Nazis and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But we've seen that at the end of the day, we're all humans, and we all want to just be heard, and we want to be, you know be acknowledged, and we all hold opinions and values. And the minute we start to realize that, and once we put that aside, that's where we start to make strides towards a better future and about a better world.
1: Changemakers hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. This is series four, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. This series is written by Kate Wilde, Amanda Tattersall, with Charles Firth as script editor. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy-lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories.
0: Mark Pesci, and I'm exploring the future of tech with my podcast, The Next Billion Seconds.
1: Listen for free at podcast1australia.com.au, search The Next Billion Seconds podcast,
0: or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Podcast One.